Okay, well, good afternoon for our next session. Today we'll be a bit heavy on law, and particularly on the Constitution. So it's a great pleasure to introduce a longtime colleague from the Cato Institute. Uh, what's your name again? <laughs> no, you were about to name the Institute. Okay, uh, Roger Pilon. Uh, Roger is, uh, has been for 24 years the director of the Center for Constitutional Studies here at Cato and has really accomplished amazing things, introducing the idea of the Constitution to the Supreme Court, for example, uh, <laughs> participating in a number of Supreme Court cases by filing amicus briefs, which have been very influential. You know you're influential when your brief is cited repeatedly in the majority opinion in a case. And uh, he has really uh, worked tirelessly to put the Constitution front and center in the discussion of the laws of this country. He has a PhD in philosophy, but I hope you don't hold that against him. He also is a juvenile delinquent, JD, uh, in law as well. Roger. Well, thank you, Tom, for that unusual introduction. Um, it's always a pleasure to be introduced by Tom because you never know what is coming. He has asked me to speak to you today about the Constitution and the rule of law, which I shall do, um, because I'm going to, I'll speak for about an hour and then we'll open it up to questions. I understand that is the drill. Um, because I'm going to be covering a good number and variety of subjects, um, it probably would be useful to begin with something of a roadmap of where I'm going so it'll be a little easier to uh, see uh, the various parts and how they're related to each other. Um, I'm going to start by just saying a couple of words about the rule of law as a notion, and then I'm going to look at the Declaration of Independence uh, because it is uh, in that document that the Founding Fathers set forth their philosophy of government, which 11 years later they took with them when they drafted the Constitution. Um, in, uh, in so far as Tom has asked me to talk mainly, however, about the higher law background of the Constitution, I'm going to draw that out of the, uh, doc out of the Declaration very briefly then show how it is borne out in the Constitution, how it was uh, rent asunder by the progressives during the New Deal, uh, giving us three schools of constitutional jurisprudence, all by way of outline. And then I'm going to go back and do the real work of my talk, which is to say, to trace the higher law background of the Constitution the idea that there is a higher law of right and wrong, a natural law, from which to derive the positive law and against which to criticize that positive law at any point in time. And I'm going to do that by first looking very briefly at the origins of that idea in antiquity with the Greeks, then the Romans, and then in the Middle Ages, especially looking at the developments of the common law over 500 years in England culminating in John Locke's second treatise, which sets forth the foundation that Jefferson drew upon when he drafted the Declaration of Independence. Then I'm going to go back to what I just outlined uh, sometime before that in order to show how it was captured by the Constitution and what became of that. Essentially, uh, we lived under it for about 150 years uh, after the New Deal we had modern constitutional law, which is what we live under today, and that is unfortunately connected to the Constitution only occasionally. And so let me begin with just a few words about the rule of law. It's a notion that has been the object of mankind from the beginning to have a government that acts under the rule of law. Unfortunately, it has been uh, known to mankind uh, far less than the opposite, namely the rule of man, which is contrasted with it uh, insofar as it stands for the idea of arbitrary rule, rule that is non-responsible, rule that uh, enables people uh, to, does not enable people to engage in the kinds of 
um, ordered activities that the rule of law enables, where you have objectivity, you have predictability, where people can plan and live their lives knowing that a body of law is there to appeal to when things go wrong. These are some of the aspects of the rule of law, and I'm going to return to them from time to time as I go along to illustrate how it is that developments over the ages have contributed to this or distracted from it, as the case may be. But let me start, as I said, with the Declaration of Independence, because it's there that the founders set forth their philosophy of government. And you see this when, right in the very first paragraph, Jefferson places us in the natural law tradition, the laws of nature and of nature's God. Now, in invoking that very limited notion of religion or theology, notice that he is making nothing in the way of a far-reaching reaching claim about the role of religion in the rule of law. He is simply invoking the uh, idioms of the time uh, and indeed the natural law tradition that he is invoking is really the natural rights strain of that tradition that came from the Enlightenment and modernity with the emergence of the individual in the late Middle Ages and later on with the uh, Reformation and the idea that there may be more than one uh, religion that is um, the one and only true religion and the idea therefore that the individual is responsible for his own salvation whether he believes in an afterlife or not. And so when you had these various ideas about religion you started to have the idea that government should take some distance from that and the natural rights tradition contributed to that because unlike the natural law tradition which served as a model for lawgivers, the natural rights tradition served from a, as a bottom-up approach to these matters. The idea that you have a body of rights which lends itself to law, but more particularly lends itself to adjudicating cases or controversies that might come before courts, as in the common law tradition. And then you look at the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence, and you see it's there that Jefferson sets forth the principles that have inspired countless millions of people around the world to come to this country where they could start anew and live under the rule of law. And you see in the very first sentence in that second paragraph, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Self-evident truths are grounded in reason. They aren't grounded in emotions or in even empirical considerations, but in reason, about which I'll say something more in just a moment. And what are they? You start with the premise of equality. All men are created equal. Obviously, Jefferson wasn't saying that we are all equal. He was saying simply that we are equal with reference to our rights. Notice he speaks of rights, not of values, virtues, or other moral notions. Rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And in this notion of the pursuit of happiness, you find an insight about the classical liberal vision that is crucial to grasp if you're going to understand the moral order that he has in mind. What makes you happy is not necessarily what makes me happy. Each of us has a different course to pursue through life according to his own subjective values. However, in doing so, the requirement is that he respect the objective rights of others. So we have an implicit distinction between rights and values, two fundamentally different moral notions. They come from different domains of morality, as the Oxford jurisprude H.L.A. Hart has put it. And the importance of drawing this distinction is that it enables us to chart a path between two unattractive alternatives in moral epistemology that we inherited from antiquity, skepticism and dogmatism. Skepticism holds that there are no moral truths, or if there are, we can't know them. Dogmatism holds that there are moral truths pertaining to every aspect of human affairs 
which are suitable for recasting in the form of coercive law, pertaining to everything from what you can put into your bodies, to the kinds of sexual practices you can engage in, to the roles of women in society, and so forth. Think of some of the draconian co codes in various places in the world today as an example of what I'm talking about. Well, neither of these alternatives is attractive. Skepticism gives you no morality, nothing to get hold of. Dogmatism gives you no liberty. So if you can distinguish objective rights from subjective values, then you have a world in which each of us is per free to pursue his subjective values as he wishes, as he works his way through life, provided he respects the objective rights of others to do the same. So you have morality on one hand with respect to the theory of rights and liberty on the other hand with respect to what you can do by way of exercising those rights in what you cannot do. So now you have both morality and liberty and you have escaped the alternatives of dogmatism and skepticism. But thus far, Jefferson has said nothing at all about government, notice, because he's working in what's called state of nature uh, theory tradition. That is to say, he is trying to, first of all, set forth the moral order and to try to determine what our rights are vis-a-vis -vis each other so that we know what it is we can do when we come together to create government. You don't want to start with government because what you're trying to do is show how a government might arise legitimately with legitimate powers. So you cannot start by assuming government or your argument will be circular. You'll be begging the question. So you start with a state of affairs without government and then you show how government arises. That's the strategy of the matter drawn from Hobbes and later from Locke. And so you look next at what Jefferson does, and he says that to secure these rights, which rights? The rights he's just outlined. Governments are created among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So notice government is twice limited. It's limited by its ends to secure our rights and by its means, which must be consented to. And so you have the two foundations of legitimacy, will in the form of consent and reason in the form of the ends that government may legitimately pursue. Now, all of this was captured to a large extent by the Constitution. The preamble puts us right back in state of nature theory. It then sets forth the idea that the government is created by the people and is empowered by the people. The government does not give people their rights. They already have their rights. The people give the government its powers. You see that borne out in the Constitution itself with the various enumeration of powers. The Bill of Rights was added later, and we live for that, that idea of limited government more or less for 150 years. The original sin of slavery required the Civil War for correction. However, after that, one can think of the, of the Constitution as having been completed. The Great Watershed was, of course, the progressive era at the end of the 19th century when the elites, draw, uh, from the, uh, especially from the uh, uh, colleges and universities of the Northeast, began fundamentally reconceiving the notion of government, thinking of it no longer as a necessary evil, but as an engine of good, an instrument through which to solve all manner of social and economic problems. That was instituted during the New Deal Revolution when the court in 1937 and 1938, following Roosevelt's infamous court packing scheme, essentially turned the Constitution on its head and we have living, been living with a Leviathan ever since. Now that is just an overview of where I'm going. Now let me go back to the beginning and to start to, to craft for you at least an outline because in an hour I can't do what I would like to do over the course of a semester. We don't have a semester for this part of the program, so I'll try to do it in just an hour. Think of it as something like a trip through the Louvre on roller skates. The, there's a Rembrandt, there's a Gauguin. I'm not going to show you the, the fine brush strokes. I'm going to just give you the big picture, which I hope in an hour's time to be able to do. 
The beginnings of this idea of a higher law can be found, as I said, in antiquity. You look at a dialogue like Plato's Euthyphro, and you see that Socrates and the young Euthyphro are before the king's court. Euthyphro there to charge his father with impiety for having bound and thrown into a ditch one of their servants who had killed one of their other servants and leaving him there while he went to Athens to seek from the exegete what he should do. In the meantime, the servant died, and so the young Euthyphro was bringing this charge of impiety against his father. Socrates, by contrast, has been charged with impiety for corrupting the morals of the Athenian youth, and the prosecutor Miletus is there to charge him with that, but he really doesn't understand what he'd done wrong, so he seeks from uh, Euthyphro the meaning of piety. Euthyphro, being young and full of himself like so many young men, is sure that he knows the meaning, so he proceeds to instruct Socrates about the meaning of piety, but each time he does, Socrates Socrates finds that the argument is wanting, and this continues through several iterations until they finally get to the ultimate question of the dialogue, namely, is piety pious because the gods love it, or do the gods love it because it is pious? Notice you've got a contrast here between legal positivism on one hand, a will theory of law, and natural law theory on the other hand rooted in reason. Is piety pious because the gods love it? In other words, that's what makes it pious. Or do the gods love it because it's pious? In other words, there are independent reasons that make piety pious, and that's why the gods love it. Even if they did not love it, they would have to respect it as being pious because uh, of these independent reasons. And so you have here the elementary, rudimentary notion of there being a higher law of right and wrong from which to derive the positive law and against which to, go to, to criticize it at any point in time. And in the course of this dialogue, uh, you see uh, uh, Socrates setting forth an elementary uh, uh, epistemological scheme. He discusses with uh, Euthyphro what it is that they might disagree about. And he points to a uh, question, would we disagree about numbers uh, such, as, uh, such as two and two is four and the like? And of course he wouldn't because these are truths that are truths of reason. Well, would we disagree about weight or about length and so forth? No, because these we would just look and see whether A is larger than B and so on and so forth. These are empirical truths. And he said, well, then would we disagree about values and the just and the unjust and so forth? Well, yes, we would disagree about that because these are evaluative notions. And so you've got a trichotomy of kinds of propositions here, kinds of truths, rational truths, empirical truths, and, quote, evaluative truths that he sets forth, the kind of thing that some two uh, millennia later you will find in a little volume by Sir Alfred J. Eyre in 1936, chapter 6, of which set forth just exactly this same trichotomy. And so here, in this early on, we're seeing an effort to, to distinguish kinds of propositions, so to help us think better about how to order things, including the, the, um, the moral world. And indeed, in moral epistemology in the last half of the 20th century, a great deal of effort has been directed toward taking at least some of ethics as against the skeptics out of this third category, in particular the theory of rights, and moving it right over the empirical category into the realm of rational truths. I'm not going to say more about that because issues of moral epistemology are complex and are the subject for another day. I just want to flag the idea that as far back as the third century BC, we see these kinds of, of, of epistemological developments that would underpin eventually the kind of order that the framers set forth in the 18th century. And you see in Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics the development of these notions with the discussion of the virtues and the vices. But when we turn to the Stoics after the demise of the Greek city-states, we see some interesting developments in natural law where they turn to the notions of universality, which they had to do because 
of the demise of the Greek city-states. Under the Greek uh, order, one belonged to a city-state, and therefore the politics comes first and the ethics comes second. This is the very reverse of the declarations order, where the ethics comes first in state-of-nature theory and the politics comes second. But after the demise of the Greek city-states, the Stoics would turn to, as I said, universality, principles that are common to all mankind, not simply because they are Athenians or Spartans or whatever. And therefore, notions of equality started entering into this, and therefore, the, the, the shoots of natural rights theory were already asserting themselves. When we turn to the Roman experience, however, we start seeing much more substantive elements. In Cicero, for example, we find uh, that the law coming out of the Senate often has a savings clause, which says that the law is null and void ab initio, if contrary to right reason. Well, you can have a notion of a savings clause only if you have this notion of right reason as a higher law, which the positive law runs contrary to. You have the development in the Roman law, obviously, of property and contract in a very sophisticated way that the uh, common law judges would later appeal to. When we look at, um, at uh, uh, Seneca, we find rudimentary notions of, of uh, state of nature theory. So you see already we're starting to get the building blocks that later theorists would draw upon. In the Middle Ages on the continent, we see the struggle between king and pope, and therefore elementary notions of separation of powers in different jurisdictions. But in the continent, you still don't have the development of the institutions that would secure these notions of the higher law. At best, you had the higher law as being thought of not as something that lawgivers would appeal to by way of setting forth a code, as in the Roman context, but rather as an omnipresence, brooding omnipresence in the sky, as Holmes would later put it, to check political power, to check the king. In the English experience, however, we finally start to see the institutions that will secure the higher law and none better than the common law. The common law was judge-made law, law that was crafted by judges when they decided cases or controversies that were brought before them by ordinary individuals and later by individuals against the king. And in crafting this law, the judges would, would appeal to both reason and custom, and they would develop the theory of rights rooted in property and contract. Indeed, Edward Corwin, in his little volume, The Higher Law Background of American Constitutional Law, says that the common law from the 14th century onward was thought to be higher law because rooted in right reason. And you see slowly this law being developed and being captured eventually in positive law in the form of Magna Carta in 1215 and Chapter 29 of Magna Carta set forth what we would recognize today as an early version of due process of law, the kind of clauses we find in the 5th and the 14th Amendments of our own Constitution. In 1610, much of this was drawn together by Lord Cook, who set forth an early version of judicial review, which is so crucial to our own Constitution. In Dr. Bonham's case, he had before him a challenge brought by Dr. Bonham to a statute of parliament that authorized the uh, doctors in the city of London to uh, enjoy monopoly power and require licensure for doctors, which uh, Dr. Bonham uh, uh, violated, and he came before Lord Cook, and he found the law null and void ab initio because in violation of right reason. It was the first clear example we have of something that we would recognize as judicial review. Well, all of this was drawn together at the end of the very stormy um, 17th century in England where several people had their heads separated from their bodies as time went on. And Locke in 1790, excuse me, 1690, sets forth in the second treatise uh, of civil government the theory of rights, the theory of property, and the social contract theory.
The theory of rights is rooted in reason, and in paragraph six we see the famous discussion that everyone being equal, no one ought to harm another in his life, liberty, possessions, etc. There is language that works its way directly in to the Declaration of Independence, equality defined by rights. We see Locke spelling out the, uh, the core of the theory of rights with the distinction between general relationships and general rights and obligations and special relationships and special rights and obligations, including the, uh, the rec restitution and punishment that would follow from violations of rights. And I'm going to take a few minutes to just set forth a, a little bit of the outline of this because it's so crucial for grasping what follows. The theory of rights is, as Locke said, grounded ultimately in property. Lives, liberties, and estates is how he defined property. That is to say, you have a right in your property such that a violation of the right is reducible to a taking a taking of the life that belongs to somebody else, a taking of the liberty that belongs to somebody else, the chattels, the exclusive uh, control over your real property, and the like. And there is the starting point for the theory of rights. We acquire property in the world by a rule of first possession, Locke says, and rightly so. That was the way the common law did it. That's the way he did it. That is to say, you start with the possession of, of uh, yourself and your liberty. And by mixing your liberty with, uh, with unowned property, you make it yours in an argument from default. That is to say, if someone else claims that the fish you caught from the ocean or the apple you picked from the unowned tree is his, then the burden rests upon him to show why at least you have done something, and so you may not have a slam-dunk argument, but you've got a better argument than the guy who says it is his who has done nothing to make good on his claim. And so now we have the beginnings. But of course, most people don't spend their lives in splendid isolation. Some libertarians do, I understand, but most people don't. Uh, on Black Acre or White Acre, they come together, and there are two morally relevant ways in which they do so. They do it either by force, committing torts or crimes, or voluntarily by entering into contracts. And so we have the second great font of rights, contract. And with these two elements, property and contract, you can create the whole of what we call civilization or civil society. You can explain everything from, uh, from marriages to the beginning of children to the creation of small businesses, large corporations, religious organizations, other voluntary organizations, and the like. All of this can be reduced to general relationships between common law strangers, whereby you have a right essentially to be free, to be left alone, and the rest of the world has an obligation to leave you alone, not to provide you with goods or services, not to be a good Samaritan, although he has a perfect right to be a good Samaritan. There's no obligation to do so, because if there were, then of course his liberty would be compromised accordingly. Or you can enter into special relationships in the two ways I just described. Either you can injure someone by a tort, or a crime, or you can enter into a contract. And in either case, you will change the world of rights and obligations. You will extinguish certain rights and obligations that you had before that, and you will bring into being new ones. And thus does the world of rights and obligations get changed and continue to be a consistent world of rights and obligations with no conflicts between the two, except in special rare cases. And nevertheless, and you will, uh, in the course of developing uh, this body of rights and obligations, doing the casuistry, that is to say, applying the broad principles to particular factual circumstances, run into cases that seem difficult, and then run into cases in which you run out of principles. In the first case, I'll just give you an example I'm fond of using, because it seems at first to be a tough case until you start to think about it, and then you go back to the premise and you see how it indeed works its way out. If I have a home with a lovely view of the bay, and between my home and the bay is your home, you decide to build a second story and block my view, the question arises, did you have a right to do that? Didn't you just simply take the view that I had, indeed reduce the value of my property as a result of the action that you took? 
Well, the answer is no. And the answer is no because of something called Lord Cook's ad coelum rule, namely that you own from the nadir to the zenith, from the center of the earth to the, to the heavens in a straight line. And fortunately, it is in a straight line because if the lines went like this, you have a mass of conflicting rights and obligations. And so it turns out that you that the, I didn't take that view or you didn't take my view when you uh, built that second story because I, it was never my view I enjoyed it because it ran over your property and indeed I could have made it my view by simply going to you and asking you if I could buy an easement running with your property pay you for it that you didn't build that second story and therefore the view would be mine but if we went the other way of course then uh, I could uh, if I make my view is of the mountain 50 miles away, I could block every every place uh, on that 50 mile stretch. And of course, we can see how absurd that would be. That would be. There is another way I could have made that view mine, of course, and that is I could have gone to the city zoning board and said, condemn his uh, property to to its current height so that I can enjoy that view. And of course, that's what they did in Berkeley. The uphill people uh, got zoning against the downhill people. And uh, but that's what you would expect in Berkeley. Uh, in, in any event, uh, the, 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 the example I've just shown is a, is a relatively simple example of how it is when you get to the, the core of the matter, namely to define what it is that you own free and clear, it helps to sort these, these uh, seemingly at least prima facie uh, cases out because it turned out you didn't own that view f free and clear. You enjoyed it because uh, of my contribution of not building, which I had a perfect right to do, just as you had a perfect right to build a second story on your house. Now, of course, it will be uh, another question invoking the odd coelum rule, whether I can fly an airplane 30,000 feet over your home or 100 feet over your home. Somewhere between 100 feet and, and 30,000 feet, of course, we're going to have to draw a line. And that brings me to the place where we run out of principles and have to start turning to values to flesh out the theory of rights. And once we turn to values, obviously we're going to have uh, different people having different values. We Reasonable people can have reasonable differences about values. There are four classic areas, nuisance, endangerment or risk, remedies, and enforcement, where you have to turn to values. Just how much noise can I make before I uh, interfere with your right to the quiet enjoyment of your property? How much quanta of particulate matter can I waft into the air before I start violating your rights? How much risk can I put you to before you start to be uncomfortable in your home about what I'm doing down in the basement of my home, experimenting with dynamite, nitroglycerin, and the like? Um, what what uh, is the remedy if I uh, drive my car into you and cause a loss of life or limb? What what's that worth? Um, obviously, you're going to value it high, and I'm going to value it low. Uh, if 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 in the state of nature someone steals my cow, do I have a right to stop everyone on the road that I come across, pull out the thumbscrew and the rack, and uh, see if that person is the one who stole my cow? Do I have a right to invade everyone's barn or home to see if this was the person who did it, and so forth? These, it's no accident that the Fourth Amendment has the words unreasonable and probable. Those are value words. And so in order to flesh out fully the theory of rights, we're going to have to go into these issues issues of value. And that's where you start to see certain natural springboards to the state. Um, and indeed, it, uh, it, you see this borne out in, in, in people like Hobbes and Locke. Uh, we may disagree about what our rights are. We may disagree about right, what rights we have uh, once our rights are violated. Uh, Hobbes put it very uh, uh, succinctly, life in the state of nature is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And Locke said it, that there are inconveniences with the life, life in the state of nature. We may disagree about our rights and so on and so forth. So it behooves us to move out of the state of nature and into the state of civil society. The problem with that, however, is that once you do, you start to run into problems of legitimacy. And I'm going to walk you through that in a, very, in a somewhat systematic way. The basic right that you have in the state of nature is the right of self-rule, the right to rule yourself and no one else. 
um, unless someone has violated your rights, and then these problems come up that I just mentioned. And so the idea is, under the social contract theory that Locke and others put forward, that we all come together in the original position and decide on creating a government and creating and deciding what government should be doing. Well, it turns out that this is a more complex problem than it first seems. Uh, it isn't complex if you have unanimity, but rarely, if ever, do you have human unanimity about matters of this kind. And the uh, if, and if you think the uh, well, no, let me hold off on that. Um, so, so the classical theorists understood that, and so they gave us the social contract theory, which is a two-stage theory of consent. Originally, we all agree unanimously to be bound thereafter by majority rule or some other fraction of the whole. And if you think the, the, the founders were not serious about social contract theory, look at the ratification clause, and you will see that it reads that this constitution uh, shall be binding um, uh, once nine states ratify it as between those states. So that means, by implication, that the 10th, 11th, 12th, and 13th would not have been bound unless they too had ratified it. So they take consent to get the game off the ground quite seriously. The problem with the social contract theory, though, is that it will work very nicely in the private sector, whether you're dealing with corporations when you buy stock, you implicitly buy into the articles of incorporation, the bylaws, and the like. But and it'll work with all kinds. You join the Boy Scouts, you, you agree to what the rules are when you join, and so on and so forth. But when you uh, enter in, 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 into government, uh, this will work only with those who are there in the original position and do, in fact, agree. Subsequent generations, none of us in this room was there in the original position, have a hard time showing they are bound. And so the, the, the classical uh, liberal theorists uh, resorted uh, in the end to the theory of tacit consent. You stayed, therefore you're bound. But if you think about it, that won't work either because it's tantamount to the majority putting the minority to a choice between two of its entitlements. It's right to stay where it is and it's right to come not to come under the will of the majority precisely the point that needs to be argued on pain of circularity. And so when you look at things this way, in this systematic way, a light should go on because what you've done now is come to the point where you realize that there is an air of illegitimacy that surrounds government as such. You cannot give a slam dunk argument to that point that the anarchist makes, uh, which is captured in the question, by what right does one man have power over another? In other words, it calls for the warrant for power. It calls for the foundations of authority defined as legitimate power. You realize that there is an air of illegitimacy that surrounds government as such. And so it should behoove you, since government is a necessary evil owing to the difficulties in the state of nature, it behooves you to do as little as possible through government and as much as possible in the private sector where it can be done voluntarily and hence in the violation of the rights of no one. And with that insight, that idea that government is a forced association, then you have the presumptions right and the burdens of proof right. The burden is always upon those who want to do things through government to argue why it should be done through government. And so, let me reduce all that I've said to this point to a few simple propositions, starting with the theory of rights. The theory of rights can be reduced to three simple rules, so simple that even a child can understand them on the playground. Rule one, don't take what belongs to someone else. That's the whole world of property. Rule two, keep your promises. That's the whole world of contract. Rule three, if you fail in one or two, give back what you've wrongly taken or wrongly withheld. That is the whole world of remedies. There is a fourth rule. It's voluntary. It's optional. Do some good as you work your way through life. Be a good Samaritan if you can do so without great peril to yourself. You don't have to. We can say with perfect consistency that you have a right not to rescue, but you ought to rescue. We can say that because those two words, right and ought, come from different domains of morality. One from the strict theory of rights rooted in reason, the other from the theory of value about which reasonable people can have reasonable differences. And so once you appreciate this, again, we're back to our distinction 
between the world that is strictly required by law, the th rooted in the theory of rights, and the world which is optional, where you are free to be all you can be or as little as you want to be. That's the world of liberty. Now, to move then over to the government, what we've got is a world in which we have a presumption against government, but we can say more about powers of government, and I'm going to do so right now. One can distinguish degrees of legitimacy of powers, and I'm going to give you three illustrations of that. The first great power of government is the police power, the power to secure our rights, what Locke called the executive power in the state of nature. When we come together in the original position, that is the main power we yield up to government to exercise on our behalf. The only person who can be heard to complain is the anarchist who will say to the people who want to have the government, look, I realize you've got a pretty good government here. You, you've got a good police force and a good judicial system and the taxes for it are, are reasonably low. But frankly, I'd rather do it myself. I think I can do it better and more cheaply. That person we force in out of the state of nature or force him to leave. Fortunately, there aren't that many of that kind of, of people, but the reason that we say it's the most legitimate form of government is that the government is exercising the same power that we ourselves had in the state of nature. The same cannot be said for the eminent domain power, the second great power of government, the power to condemn property for public use provided just compensation is paid, which is used by government when it's used sparingly and legitimately to uh, avoid the holdout problems in certain network industries and the like. And so the question there is what justifies this? Because nobody in the state of nature would have the power to condemn his neighbor's property, no matter how worthy use he put it to, and even if he did pay just compensation. And so the question here is um, what justifies it? And there are two basic rationales. First, in the original position, we did, we did give it to government in the form of the Fifth Amendment's uh, uh, implicit uh, recognition of the power of eminent domain. And second, it's what economists call Pareto superior. At least one person is made better off by it, namely the public, as is evidenced by its willingness to pay, and no one is made worse off, as is evidenced by the receipt of just compensation uh, by the party from whom the property is taken, which under current law never is the case the party is given uh, market value. That is not just compensation. If it were, the party would have his property on the market. The fact that he doesn't have it on the market indicates that it's worth more in his hands than it would fetch on the market. And so that's the second power, which is not nearly as legitimate as the basic uh, police power. The third power is the least legitimate, and that's the regulatory power, the power to take from A to give to B without compensation. That is illegitimate utterly, and yet it is what most governments do in most of our waking hours. And there are two forms of the regulatory power. There is material and regulatory, uh, a redistributive power. There is material and, and um, regulatory redistribution. Material redistribution takes place through the taxing power to take from A and give to B. Uh, regulatory redistribution, as distinct from the kind of regulation that is legitimate by way of fleshing out the theory of rights along the lines I talked about a few minutes ago, redistributive regulatory power takes rights from A uh, for the benefit of B or in either that or it imposes obligations on A that he otherwise would not have for the benefit of B. This is regulatory redistribution. And so there you have a trichotomy of different kinds of powers in descending, our, uh, in descending uh, order of illegitimacy to help think about what it is we do through government. All right, with this now, essentially this, this higher law before us, we can return to the, uh, to the Constitution, uh, having already explicated this in the, in the Declaration of Independence, the philosophy of government, which was essentially one of limited government, each of us free to pursue um, um, our happiness as we see fit uh, with government there to secure our rights to do so. 
In the uh, Constitution, the principal problem Madison had before him when he sat down to draft the, the Constitution was how to create a government at once strong enough to secure our rights and do the few other things we wanted to do, yet not so powerful and extensive as to violate rights in the process. And he did that through the checks and balances we're all familiar with. But he started in the preamble, as I said, and there you see we're right back in state of nature theory, just as Locke uh, had us, just as Jefferson had us in the Declaration. We the people, for the purposes listed, do ordain and establish this Constitution. All power starts with the people. They create the government. They give it certain powers, retaining the rest for themselves. The government does not give the people their rights. Now, you look to the body of the Constitution, and you will see how it seeks to limit power. First of all, it divides power between the federal and state governments, leaving most power with the states. Secondly, it separates power between the three branches, each defined functionally. It provides for a bicameral legislature, each house constituted differently. It provides for a unitary executive with the power to veto legislation and the power to, uh, to um, uh, order uh, international affairs, primarily. The, uh, then you've got the uh, power of the Congress to override a veto by a supermajority. You've got the provision for an independent judiciary, unique at its time with the power of judicial review by implication in the very notion of the judicial power under a written constitution, which Hamilton spelled out more fully in Federalist 78 through 85, and then in Marbury v. Madison in 18.3, the Supreme Court made explicit. You have the provision for periodic elections to fill the offices, not to expand power, but to fill the offices set forth in the document. But the main restraint on overweening government, and remember, they just fought a revolution to rid themselves of overweening government. They weren't about to impose it upon themselves. The main restraint took the name of the doctrine of enumerated powers, when I, which I can state no more simply than this. If you want to limit power, don't give it in the first place. And you see this in the very first sentence of Article I. All legislative power herein granted shall be vested in a Congress. By implication, not all power was herein granted. Look at Article I, Section 8, and you will see those powers that were granted to Congress. Count them. There are only 18 such powers. The power to tax in limited ways, the power to borrow, the power to regulate interstate commerce, and so forth. And then you look at the last documentary evidence from the founding period, the Tenth Amendment, and you see this doctrine spelled out expressly. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. In other words, the Constitution establishes a government of delegated, enumerated, and thus limited powers. And then you look at the Ninth Amendment, and you see the obverse of the Tenth. The Tenth speaks of powers, the Ninth of rights. The Ninth says, the enumeration of the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage, or disparage others retained by the people. The history that gave us the Ninth Amendment gives you a good insight into the thinking of the founders and the framers. During the ratification debates, it became clear that the Constitution would not be ratified unless a Bill of Rights were added. The Anti-Federalists insisted upon that as a condition of ratification. But there were objections to a Bill of Rights. Hamilton, Wilson, and others said, why declare that there is freedom of speech when no power is given with which to violate the freedom of speech? Notice they took the doctrine of enumerated powers seriously as the main impediment to overweening government. So a Bill of Rights was unnecessary. Moreover, it would be dangerous, they said. Why? Because there are, in principle, an infinite number of rights, a right to get up in the morning when you want to, right to wear a hat, and on and on. You're not going to put those in a constitution, but by ordinary principles of legal construction, the failure to include all members of a category will be construed as implying that only those that are enumerated are meant to be protected in contradistinction from those that are not enumerated. And so it was to address that problem that they wrote the Ninth Amendment, which says, again, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Notice, retained by the people. You can't retain what you don't first have to retain. And so the picture that emerges from the Constitution, once it's completed with the Bill of Rights having been added two years later, 
is the same picture that emerged from the Declaration, namely a world of live and let live, an libertarian world in which each of us is free to pursue happiness as he thinks best, provided he respects the equal rights of others to do the same, with government there to secure those rights and to do the few other things that we have authorized it to do. And we lived under that regime more or less, as I said, for 150 years. It wasn't perfect, to be sure. There was the document's oblique recognition of slavery. The fr framers wrestled mightily with that institution. They knew it was inconsistent with their founding principles. They hoped it would wither away in time. It didn't. It took a civil war to end slavery and the passage of the Civil War Amendments, which for the first time provided for federal remedies against state violations of our rights. The Bill of Rights applied only against the government uh, that was created by the document to which it was appended, namely the federal government. With the 14th Amendment, however, you now could go into federal court to make a claim against your state that it was violating your privileges or immunities as a citizen of the United States, your right to life, liberty, and property with due process of law before those were, were taken, and your the equal protection of the laws, the three fonts of rights under the um, under the 14th Amendment. Well, now we come to the great watershed, the, uh, the um, progressive era. The progressives at the end of the 19th century and the early decades of the 20th century fundamentally rethought our conception of government. Whereas the founders saw government as a necessary evil, the progressives saw it as an instrument through which to solve all kinds of social problems. If I may paraphrase the DuPont ad of several years ago, it was to be bigger living through better government. Or excuse me, better living through bigger government. They were looking to uh, Europe, to German schools of good government, Bismarck's social security scheme, for example. They were looking to British utilitarianism, which in ethics had replaced natural rights theory. The idea was that a law, policy, judgment, were justified not with reference to whether they uh, secured our rights, but rather with reference to whether they provided the greatest good for the greatest number. Notice it was a consequentialist justification, not the kind of non-consequentialist or deontological justification that, that underpinned the theory of rights. It was forward-looking, not backward-looking. It would lent itself this utilitarian theory uniquely to statutory law as opposed to judge-made law. Law as policy, law that is, uh, that is instituted to create all kinds of goods and services for the benefit of the public. It was to be indeed the, uh, a brave new world of public law. For example, private charity wasn't simply to be su uh, supplemented by public charity, but it was to be crowded out by public charity conducted by professionals trained at the Columbia School of Social Work. And we have example after example during this period of the social sciences thinking that they could do for mankind what the hard sciences had been doing over the course of the 19th century. The hubris in the Hayekian sense of the social sciences during this period was all but unbounded. I will give you an example because it was not just in economic regulation at the state level mostly that the progressives were active. They were also engaged in certain personal affairs. A case called Buck v. Bell in 1927 illustrates this. It was a sweetheart deal, a challenge to a Virginia statute that authorized the sterilization of people thought to be of insufficient intelligence, not as bright as the folks in this room. Indeed, it was all part of the modern eugenics movement. The idea is that how are you going to improve the human race if you allow those people to procreate? And so suit um, came before the Supreme Court, and the court, in the name of Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, the sainted Justice Holmes, decided in favor of the Virginia statute in an opinion of no more than five paragraphs, ending with the ringing words, three generations of imbeciles are enough. And there followed some 70,000 sterilizations in this country. Indeed, uh, the, um, uh, just last year, the North Carolina legislature voted to give, uh, to give compensation to those few people who remain alive who were sterilized. And then it's my understanding that the bill never did pass at the end of the day. And so 
what you've got here is an attempt of, of social engineering through government. But of course, standing athwart this effort was that pesky constitution and the willingness of the court to enforce it. And it did in large measure through the early decades of the 20th century. Not entirely, to be sure, as Buck V. Bell illustrates, as the uh, city of Euclid, Ambler, Amber Realty v. City of Euclid, Euclid in 1926, the zoning case, and other such cases illustrate. But by and large, the court did. Things came to a head, however, during the New Deal when the progressives shifted their focus from activism at the state level to activism at the federal level, and one program after another that the Roosevelt administration introduced in Congress was found to be unconstitutional. After the landslide election of 1936, from what we get the phrase, as goes Maine, so goes Vermont, the only two states who, that went for Alf Landon, how things have changed in my native Vermont. Today, it's the People's Republic of Vermont. Then it was a Ribrock Republican state, but I digress. The, um, the, uh, the, after the landslide election of 36, Roosevelt unveiled his infamous court packing scheme, his threat to pack the court with six new members of his own choosing. Well, there was an uproar over that. They knew that this was an attack on the rule of law, to come back to that notion, and was something very contrary to our, condition, to our traditions. However, the court got the message. There was the famous switch in time that saved nine, and it began rewriting the Constitution without benefit of constitutional amendment. I will just sketch this for you because Bob Levy is going to follow me here and give you these cases in much greater detail. In 1937, it bifurcated, excuse me, it uh, eviscerated the very centerpiece of the Constitution, the doctrine of enumerated powers. In 38, it bifurcated the Bill of Rights giving us a, a, um, two, two kinds of rights and two levels of judicial review. And in 1943, it jettisoned the non-delegation doctrine, the idea that it, the, all legislative uh, acts are to take place in Congress. In, just to just say a little bit more about these, uh, these uh, incidents, in 37, it addressed two clauses in the Constitution, the Commerce Clause and the General Welfare Clause. The, uh, the General Welfare Clause is the first of Congress's powers. It's really the taxing power. The General Welfare is a phrase within that clause. In the Butler decision of 1936, the court revisited a famous debate that had taken place in the early days of the country between Hamilton on one side and Madison Jefferson and virtually everybody else on the other side about the meaning of this clause. Hamilton stood for the idea that there was an independent power to tax and spend for the general welfare. That couldn't possibly be right, said Madison and the others, because if that were the case, since money can be used to accomplish anything, then any time Congress wanted to do something that was not authorized to it because no power had been given to it with which to do it, it could simply say that it was taxing and spending for the general welfare and make an end run around the doctrine of enumerated powers. Indeed, they added, what was the point of having enumerated Congress's other powers uh, if it could do whatever it wants under this sole power? They could have stopped right there. And they were absolutely right in that. Well, in the Butler decision in 36, the court came, revisited this debate, came down on Hamilton's side, but in dicta, not the holding of the case, just dicta. A year later, however, in the Social Security case, the Helvering v. Davis case, it elevated the dicta to the holding of the case, and so the floodgates were open to the modern redistributive state. In 37, they also revisited the meaning of the Commerce Clause, and here, in the Jones and Laughlin case, they held that Congress had the power to regulate anything that affected interstate commerce. Well, the commerce power was given to Congress in light of the uh, events that were taking place under the Articles of Confederation, where states were erecting tariffs and other protectionist measures for the benefit of in-state interests against the interests of out-of-state uh, um, organizations. And it was leading to the breakdown of the free flow of goods and services among the states. So Congress was given the power to regulate or make regular commerce among the states to ensure a free national market. Indeed, in the first great commerce clause case, Gibbons v. Ogden, that's exactly how it was used, to check a New York grant of monopoly to a ferry trade between uh, New Jersey and New York. In the, in the Jones and Laughlin case, however, the court said, Congress could regulate anything that affects interstate commerce, which, of course, is anything and everything. And so the floodgates were open to the modern 
regulatory state. But of course, you could still invoke your rights. So to address that problem, the court in footnote four of Caroline Products in 1938 gave us the um, doctrine of a bifurcated Bill of Rights, bifurcated judicial review. If a law implicated fundamental rights, like speech, voting, notice the democratization of the Constitution, and later certain personal liberties, then it would, um, uh, it would um, uh, apply strict scrutiny. The court would require that the government have a compelling interest for its statute, and the means must be narrowly tailored. In all likelihood, the statute would be found unconstitutional. By contrast, if a law implicated non-fundamental rights, like speech, like, um, like uh, property, contract, the rights we exercise in ordinary commercial relations, well, then the court would apply the so-called rational basis test, which is no test at all. It stands for the idea that if the legislature had some reason, some conceivable reason, for having passed the statute, of course, we all have reasons, muggers have reasons for what they do, then, of course, the, uh, the, the law would be found constitutionally, would sail right through. So thereafter, we had essentially two and one quarter branches of government. The floodgates were open to the modern regulatory and redistributive state, and you could no longer go into court to effectively protect your property rights, your economic liberties, which is what most legislation deals with. And so we now have uh, the in 43, the jettisoning of the non-delegation doctrine, the doctrine that says that Congress uh, cannot delegate to other branches its legislative power. There was so much legislation coming through that it had no choice but to say to the executive branch agencies it was creating, you write the regulations. We'll just pass the broadly worded statute. And so we had the emergence of the modern executive state, which is where most lawmaking takes place today. And we had the emergence, in short, of modern Leviathan, which has expanded and expanded over the years. Now, notice what the New Deal uh, revolution accomplished. It, comp it accomplished the democratization of the Constitution, which is to say, to turn it from an essentially legal document into an essentially political document. And think about the implications for the rule of law. Now all is politics, very little is law. The, legislation is fr the legislature, the Congress, is free to legislate in virtually any area it wishes, except for those fairly explicit rights that are in the Constitution. That means you're living under the rule of man. Whatever the majority in the Congress says, that will be the law. And of course, it's not really the majority, as modern pu public choice economics tells us. It's those people who are best able to work the system, usually the special interests who can work the various committees and subcommittees in Congress. So rarely, when you have the packaging of, of uh, uh, bills in omnibus legislation, rarely do you have anything that reflects majority uh, will on any particular element in that package. And so there you have the sources of the modern demise of the rule of law and the rise of the rule of man. There has been a reaction to that. The conservatives reacted to the uh, Warren and Burger courts uh, 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 finding rights that were nowhere there to be found, even among our unenumerated rights, in the late 50s and early 60s and, and, and through, through the 70s. They reacted, however, not by going back to the root of the matter, the demise of the doctrine of enumerated powers. Both they and the liberals made their peace with that. The only difference was on the right side, with the conservatives calling on the court to secure only those rights that were fairly expressly in the Constitution, not the kinds of unenumerated rights which constitute the most, the great bulk of our rights. The liberals, by contrast, called on the court to secure rights episodically ignoring rights that were plainly there, like property and contract, and finding rights that were nowhere there. That opened the door for a third school of thought, which I'm happy to say I was in the forefront of back in the 1970s at the University of Chicago, Bernie Segan, and then joined shortly thereafter by people like Richard Epstein, Randy Barnett, and many others. 
to develop this third school of thought that calls for restoring the original Constitution, reviving the doctrine of enumerated powers and protecting rights both enumerated and unenumerated. On the powers side, the court finally did that for the first time in 58 years in 1995 in United States v. Lopez when it found that Congress exceeded its power under the Commerce Clause when it enacted the Gun-Free School Zones Act of 1990. It repeated that again in 2000 in the Morrison case, but then in 2005 in the Raich case, the California medical marijuana case, it went the other way. So it's hard to know what is left of the Rehnquist Court's resurrection of the doctrine of enumerated powers, admittedly only on the edges. We have, of course, the Obamacare decision, which Bob is going to speak to more fully, and that is a decision in which he and I have some differences. He thinks it's a rather better decision than I do. He, no, he thinks it's a horrible decision, but uh, there are he sees silver linings that I have difficulty seeing. But I, I won't speak any further for him because he is quite capable of speaking for himself and probably will speak for me too. But in any event, <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, on the right side, we've had rather better of it because we have had a series of cases along the way from Lochner in 1905 to Lawrence in 2003 and many cases in between like Griswold in 1996, the right to 1969, uh, um, the right to sell and use contraceptives like, um, like um, uh, uh, Lawrence, uh, the right of homosexuals to engage in whatever they wish to engage in, in the privacy of their own home, like uh, 1925 decision of uh, Pierce v. Society of Sisters, the right to send your child to a non-governmental school, and so forth, all of which are examples of the court finding rights that are not expressly in the Constitution, but part of the rights that we have as part of the higher law background of the Constitution. And with that, I will stop and invite your questions. Thank you.